the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the second hour of the Jimmy Sangenberger Show. News Talk 710 KNUS. The show where the top of the hour bumper is my own. Good to be with you. As always, thanks for joining in to the festivities. So there was breaking news this morning, some tragic news. Uh, Yesterday we learned that three of the hostages being held by Hamas, Israeli hostages, were killed by Israeli forces Friday night, shot, now we learned, after they emerged shirtless from a building in northern Gaza, holding up a stick with a white cloth on it, a senior Israeli military official said Saturday. This according to the Wall Street Journal. The official said the decision by two Israeli soldiers to open fire violated the military's rules of engagement. The hostages, and they were ages 28, 25, and 26, were within 10 meters of the Israeli soldiers fighting in an area of Gaza, one of whom felt threatened and opened fire, the official said. Two of the hostages were killed immediately, and the third ran back inside the building. A cry for help was heard in Hebrew, and immediately the battalion commander ordered a ceasefire, the official said. But another soldier fired despite the order, killing the third hostage. By stripping off their shirts, the three may have been trying to show the Israeli army that they were not armed or wearing explosive suicide vests. The official clarified very clearly. I'll say very, very clearly, this was against our rules of engagement. Very tragic, and it is very tragic indeed. This, of course, putting additional pressure on the Israeli government, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, to bring the hostages home, even as they seek to eradicate Hamas which is a necessary objective. Of course, here at home, we see many of these sorts of calls for a ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire, they say. One of the leading advocates for this on the left, Palestinian-American Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who was censured recently by the Congress, bipartisan censure in the House, And uh, let's just say that she didn't take the censor that she got for her anti-Semitic antics and claims. 20 Democrats voted with Republicans to censure you. Did any of them have a conversation with you? You were so emotional. You have so much to say about your family. Did any of them talk to you before they made that vote? I mean, a handful. Uh, I mean, I was completely heartbroken. I I did not know that they were going to, you know, stand with the fascist. Uh, side of the aisle. Stand uh, with the fascist side of the aisle. Now we hear this kind of rhetoric. It's fascism. It's support for genocide against the Palestinian people. The anti-Semitism on the rise, but it ties in with jihadism. They go hand in hand. 
particularly because what is Hamas? It is a radical Islamist group. But one of the things that we have seen, especially since October 7th, has been an alignment between the far left in this country and the jihadists. Now, this is nothing new, though, according to my guest for this hour, Dr. Marv Traeger. But it is now at a point, an inflection point, where it is, I think, more visible, more clear than ever before. Dr. Marv Traeger is a retired psychotherapist. He is a Buddhist teacher, and he's a converted conservative who was a far-left radical in the 1960s. He was associated with Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn way back when. Fascinating story, a fascinating man with some fascinating insights as he rejoins me now on the Jimmy Sangenberger Show at long last. Marv, my friend, welcome back. Hello there, Jimmy. I'm so happy to be talking with you. Thank uh, you, my friend. Oh, one other thing. I have to make sure I mention this. Happy 85th birthday. I know you just turned 85, so there you go. Happy birthday, brother. Glad to be able to wish you well wishes for that here on the program. Oh, well, thanks a lot. You know, you know, if you're in your low 80s, people still expect you to show up and do things. But as soon as you hit 85, they expect when they show up, they're taking care of you. So, uh, uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's a landmark. There you go. All right, my friend. Well, it's been it's been. I appreciate it. It's been too long. And I, I want to ask you before we get into your story and then the epiphany that you had in 2001, just after 9-11, that led you to becoming a conservative from being a radical Marxist leftist. But I want to ask you first, just sort of big picture with what's going on with Israel and the war and here at home and so forth. What's your sense of where things stand at this moment? Well, uh, I think people need to understand, uh, and they don't uh, in general in the West, but most particularly in the Biden administration and the people up there in their more comfortable lives uh, who make decisions that affect uh, the rest of us. For Israelis, the country as a whole has fallen into an implacable resolve that this is never going to happen again. Never again was a slogan after uh, the Holocaust. And it was, you, you'll, you'd see it over and over and over again. But 10-7 is a new level of never again. And that resolve is a resolve of the heart. So that it, it, really all of the Israeli people, and I include a, 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 among these, um, many, many Muslim Arabs, 20% of whom is the population of Israel, are coming from this heartfelt, uh, and, and you know, when I say heartfelt resolve, you know, the word courage comes to mind, which is related to the idea of the, uh, of, of the heart. And um, uh, uh, Aristotle had mentioned that uh, of all the virtues, uh, if you do not have courage, none of the other ones will ever be fulfilled. So part of the, that resolve is that this can never happen again with regard to Hamas, and it can never happen again um, with regard to those behind Hamas, which is really Iran and 
Hamas is really a proxy of Iran. And, and so that resolve also applies to the notion that with, if this could be done on 10-7, there must never be allowed the possibility of Iran acquiring nuclear weapons. And uh, I, I would say that's in the heart of every Israeli uh, during this struggle. I think those are some very profound and important points, to be sure. Uh, now, to set the stage for the theme of the discussion, which is this alignment between the radical left and the jihadists, Hamas, however you want to look at it, I, I want to set the stage for folks on your background, because the story that you have is extraordinary. You're a fascinating man. And... It traces back to the 1960s and the radical organizations that you were affiliated with. Let's set aside 2001. Let's go before 2001. Your leftist activism, what was that like? Who was Marv Traeger prior to this epiphany, this revelation that we'll get to in September of 2001? Well, uh, in the, uh, the, the low 60s, the first few years of the 60s, I became youth chairman of the Communist Party of Southern California. And then in uh, 1967, I left the party and I moved <laughs> to the left toward Maoism. And hey, wait, wait, eventually wait, wait. You moved toward, to the left, yeah. Marv, of being the chair of the Southern California Communist Party? Yeah, I thought of them as revisionists. They were too soft. They were... Um, uh, you know, they really were not any longer re true revolutionaries. And um, so, uh, you know, and then there was a, a movement going on in the country uh, at that time. Uh, you, you know, the um, the Communist Party was completely behind um, Martin Luther King and a, uh, you know, the, you know, color of our skin, not the, you know, character, not the color of our skin and moving forward. But also at that time, a more potent radicalism had been arising, which was the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords, uh, the Black Power Movement. And um, uh, and they were calling for revolution. And uh, so uh, they, they were attracted to Maoism. I was attracted to Maoism. And then the Maoism turned out for me to be uh, also a dead end, and I ended up in uh, the, the nasty little sectarian corner of Trotskyism, and then left that in 1972, vowing that this is all a dead end, that there's no way I can be part of it. Uh, but, and here's what happens with a lot of young people and people who get into that ideology, and that is that even though you know, you've left the movement, even though you find nothing in it that you can particularly organize around and you become apolitical, you continue to hold on to the larger world view. And so that's the lens in which, you know, you look at things and look at the world. And I would say that I remained with that world view for several decades. So in that regard, between... 1972, when you said, okay, this movement isn't something I'm going to be involved in. It's just not doing anything for me. And 2001, what kinds of things did you do with your activism or with your beliefs? 
Well, um, uh, I, I became very, I was part of the whole, I was in the Bay Area in the 70s and and the counterculture uh, was, you know, just rife and uh, spiritual teachings were kind of wafting in on the trade winds under the Golden Gate Bridge. And um, I became interested in meditation and uh, Buddhism. And I would say that that was eroding the foundations of my leftism without my knowing it, uh, you know, at the very foundations, because the whole view there is a different kind of view. But uh, uh, also I did, I uh, in in the 80s, um, my wife and I went for six months to Nicaragua, because which is typical of of leftists, and that is that um, uh, the revolution never fails. It's just you know it really wasn't tried properly, and so you're always you know, and so the Sandinistas seemed like oh this is a new attempt. This won't be like the Soviet Union. This won't be like communist China. And we went there, though, um, not as uh, uh, revolutionaries, but um, uh, uh, training psychologists in body-oriented psychotherapy for six months. And, um, and uh, I got to see how this, how, where the Sandinistas were going to go downhill. And, uh, you know, for example, all school children had to sing the Sandinista um, anthem as their national anthem rather than something like in the United States that is for all the people. And, uh, and I could see the seeds of that. But then again, I thought, well, you know, it's a poor country and they go through a transition. So I still hung on to the world view. And, um, uh, and then I taught at Antioch and actually went through, a, 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 taught a number of courses on um, uh, cultural Marxism, which was how Marxism was starting to evolve, the teachings of Herbert Marcuse and others like that. And they are very pertinent to today's uh, radical leftism. Mm, um, fascinating. Marxist, tr- traditional Marxism had failed everywhere it had gone, whether it came into power, it then failed having been in power, or it failed coming to power. And so it went through its own internal uh, uh, metamorphosis. And um, part of that was uh, cultural Marxism. Fascinating. We could spend the whole hour, we could spend hours on what you did back in that point in time. But we're going to take a break. When we come back, let's talk about 2001, your revelation about the far left and how we are now seeing that revelation manifested more than ever before in the left's support for the Palestinian cause, their apologism for Hamas. Keep it right here. Jimmy Sangenberger, News Talk 710 KNUS. Dr. Marv Traeger, sticking with us. The best known to man. The best Christmas bumper music you'll find anywhere on the radio. Ah, gotta love it. One of my absolute favorite Christmas classics, Merry Christmas Baby, as done by one of the guys who was on the original recording of Johnny Moore's Three Blazers on the piano. It's Charles Brown's version. So many other great versions, but his takes the cake. As we continue, best Christmas bumper music known to man. News Talk 710 KNUS. Great to be with you. 
this morning. We're joined by Dr. Marv Traeger, who for decades was on the far left. He was so far to the left that he left the Communist Party because it wasn't radical enough back in the 1960s. But then something happened in 2001. He is, as well, a Buddhist teacher who has gone on many, many retreats, including solitary retreats. And that, Marv, is where I want to bring us at this moment, because here in our country, we're seeing a rise in anti-Semitism that is clearly tied in with a strain on the radical left that has an alignment with jihadists or however you want to look at it, Islamism, what have you. And I want to get to that in a moment. But first, this is a very important piece of the story, the big reason why I wanted to have you back on today. Because in 2001, you had quite a revelation while you were on one of your retreats. Marv, take it away, brother. Well, in 2001, I was in retreat uh, seven months that year. And the last three months, I was in solitary retreat. And uh, just as I was about to go, uh, Kathy, my wife, asked, um, uh, sweetie, do you, do, is there anything you want to know about what's going on in the world politically while you're in retreat? And I laughed. And I said, no, not really, unless it's on the level of Pearl Harbor. And uh, then the Twin Towers came down. And so naturally... It was on the level of Pearl Harbor, and she contacted me. Now, at that time, uh, you can well imagine, you know, I'm, uh, my mind was extremely sharp and Yeah, Mark, clear. before you, you say that, tell us, paint a picture of a solitary retreat. Like, you're not just at a hotel room, you know, on your own, but and asking, don't disturb me unless my wife calls me. It's a bit more than that, <laughs> isn't it? Oh, much more. So I'm in a cabin, and uh, there's uh, there's no communication inside or out, and there's a retreat center, and the retreat center does have a bulletin board. And every now and then I would, you know, uh, pass there. You know, I would go there. I would, when everyone was gone, I would get some food and then carry it back up to the cabin so I wasn't uh, mixing with any of the other people who were attending various retreats. And there uh, on the bulletin board was a note, and the, no- and the note was addressed to me. And I thought, well, that's peculiar, and that's how I learned about it. Okay. Now please continue in terms of your state of mind. So my state of mind was very sharp, very clear, and my heart was very open. And, um, uh, and, and you know, with ideology, there's always an emotional component it could be said the other way around. With emotions, there's uh, an ideological component. Well, um, the, uh, when a ideology shatters, it shatters because the emotional component kind of connects up with the total worldview. And um, when this happened, I uh, it was like immediately I saw that... Um, uh, that there was going to end up being an alliance between the jihadists and the radical left. And the reason was that they had a common enemy, and that enemy was America. And I knew that was going to be bad for the people everywhere, 
including the people right here. And um, uh, and so suddenly America, I, I, I held it in a new light. It was like I realized everything I ever had benefited and what the benefits of it were. And so, um, uh, and it, as it turned out, I, I quickly learned once I got out of, uh, of retreat that my, some of my old radical friends were totally disturbed because everywhere they turned, they saw American flags. And they just they couldn't believe it, and they thought it was awful. And it was like, uh, you know, I didn't say anything right away because, you know, I didn't need to get into it with them. But I could see that that was, you know, just evidence of exactly uh, what it was that I was talking about. And so they started to apologize for um, Islam, and they started to, uh, you know, criticism of, of Islam became Islamophobia, no matter what. doesn't mean that there isn't such a thing as Islamophobia, of course. But um, to turn it into a kind of an ideology, uh, as the Bush administration did, and then to bring in all of these um, uh, uh, Muslims that were connected with organizations that were linked to jihadism, you know, rather than uh, people who were, um, you know, in a more moderate mode with their religion, so it was really uh, it was really revelatory, and I resolved to um, you might say retool, and I spent the next uh, eight years. Um, um, I still didn't get active, but I spent it uh, re studying, restudying everything: American history, the Constitution, um, and you know I saw very clearly that at the core of America was the fulfillment in many respects of the Western Enlightenment, which centers upon the individual and their full flowering. And that, of course, also <laughs> coincided with what I learned, you know, from studying the Buddha and practicing. And that was, you could say in many ways, historically, that was the beginning of individualism. And what was Marxism? Marxism was the really the... Uh, the beginning of, you could say, in the modern sense, of identity politics. It wasn't the individual that mattered. Uh, it was, in fact, the class that mattered. And all history was the history of class struggle. So Marxism began as identity politics. You know, bourgeoisie versus proletariat, feudal lords versus, you know, serfs, slaves and slave masters. And... Um, uh, all of those class struggles were going to be abolished, and then one day everyone would live together, and then individualism would flourish. So, uh, so that view got completely shattered for me, and it meant I <laughs> I had a lot of uh, self criticism and self reflection and um, uh, to to engage in. And I've been writing my memoirs. I'm up to 135,000 words. And uh, I, I'm only up to 1980. <laughs> so, well, let me knows. let me jump in there, Marv. Again, Dr. Marv Traeger, yeah. our guest. You have described this process to me in the past. And we first met and I started interviewing you going back clear to what was it? I think 2014. We were down at the Broadmoor at a weekly standard retreat. And I, I first uh, met you then and there. I think it was 2000. Yeah, it was, to, oh, it was 2014. It was when I interviewed Charles Krauthammer. And the Roto-Rooter process is what you've called it before to me, where you're really 
just under uh, undertaking this journey of discovery of not just self but of America, really undoing what you 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 did what Yoda said, unlearned what you have learned, and that <laughs> is that's so true. But but just at, at real briefly here, because I want to get to the bigger picture. When you're doing that, you have that kind of revelation. And you have this Roto-Rooter process. What is that like? Because normally we might recognize something and be like, oh, okay, that's a point that's important. And we might think about it and then come to the conclusion, okay, that's right. But you did something fundamental and you had a revelation in that moment. You told me this when we first met, that this alliance between the radical left and the jihadists was going to happen. What is that like? Well, uh you know what what happens you, you really I, I you remember that term roto rooter very good because what what a person needs to do once the uh, uh the bubble of the worldview pops okay there's like an empty space and then there is the whole experience that you've gone through and the way you've seen the world and uh you start to recognize my god you know I was losing parts of it here and there, but not the basic worldview. And so you need to take a roto-rooter to your brain. And that means that uh, all your habits of thought and of reaction and response, uh, all your uh, emotional habits have to be examined, you know, and uh, not just, you know, it wouldn't hurt psychotherapeutically, but um, uh, uh, and with your closest and dearest friends, but um, also uh, for me uh, in meditation. And it was a dismantling process. It was a dissolving process. And uh, believe it or not, many, many years later, I still, there are moments that I, uh, I have a knee-jerk reaction and then I go, oh, there you go again. <laughs> and yeah. the, the Roto-Rooter is still operating. Fascinating. Uh, Dr. Marv Traeger, I want to play a clip here. This is a sample of some of the anti-Semitism that we are seeing on display in Philadelphia outside of a uh, Israeli-owned deli and co- by college students and on college campuses. laughing and smiling as they sat on top of the Israeli military jeep captured by our freedom fighters. Yes! Do you remember that picture? Yes! How about the photos of the bulldozer breaking through the deadly border? Do you remember that picture? Yes! And the several other joyful and powerful images which came from the glorious October 7th. Yes! I want you to picture those in your mind. I want you all to remember how you felt when you saw those images and heard the news. I remember feeling so empowered and happy, so confident that victory was near and so tangible. Let me just be clear that in the first and third clips there, it was a lot of white folks in those protests 
That's the term that they use. When we're seeing what's happening in college campuses, we're seeing what's going on with the college university presidents who cannot take a firm stand against all of this. And we have politicians in Colorado. I write in yesterday's Denver Gazette about State Representative Iman Joday, who's a Palestinian-American herself, and State Representative Elizabeth Epps. And they're constantly talking about genocide and the rest. Uh, when you hear that, what, what is going on in this moment from your perspective, especially in light of that revelation from 2001? To me, Marv, what you've been saying for years is being manifested more than ever before. Well, uh, one of the first things, one of the first responses that I have is uh, actually emotional because the, the, the use of the term genocide uh, cheapens it. Um, yes, there are there are fights and there are wars and people die and that's tragic. Um, but genocide is the complete annihilation of an entire people. That is what Hitler's and the Nazis' uh, actual behavior was in the Holocaust. And to throw genocide around just reveals a level of ignorance mm. and emotional backwardness. And, you know, I don't really even like the term anti-Semitism so much. To me, it's Jew hatred. Yes, um, that's uh, right. Uh, Arabs are Semites anyway. So, um, you know, that really isn't the, 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 the key. And, uh, and Jews come from many, many, many places. Many of them are Semites and many of them are not Semites. So, uh, so that's one of the first things that really, uh, really gets me. And then, it, it, you know, it reminds me of my own idiocy. So that's the Roto-Rooter is called into action again. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's really, really, uh, really, really key. And I can see how this is coming particularly out of the universities and um, y y where they've been indoctrinated and where the left, um, you know, when Bill Ayers and uh, the weathermen failed, what did they do? Um, their bombings didn't get them anywhere. And this, this and they, you know, instead they shifted into academia. academia. Yes. Yeah. And um, so they were, in that sense, representative of, of an entire uh, generation of, of leftists who found a home uh, in reproducing um, their delusions uh, uh, amongst their students. But, but, but Marv, why, why is it – I can understand the emotional appeal of leftism and, and the ideas of, of government doing things and so forth. But why this? Why an alliance with jihadism and why is that expanding in these sentiments among young leftists? What is the appeal? Well, if you start to look at uh, the content of radical leftism, uh, you're going to see – that there are certain charges that they make against Israel. One is that it's a settler colonial state. Another is that uh, Gaza has, is being occupied or Palestine is being occupied. Another is that it's an apartheid state. And another is that it's a tool of the West. And um, all, every single one of those is completely false. But uh, it is not understood or not known, and it's certainly not taught in the universities. So um, 
just to mention a couple of points about that, because uh, uh, the whole idea that, uh, first of all, uh, Jews continuously occupied that region of the Middle East for 3,300 years. Now, there were ups and downs in that. They were, um, uh, you know, the Romans uh, uh, massacred in them and they would disperse them. And then in the 7th century, the, um, uh, when Muhammad, after he passed and the armies marched uh, in all directions, uh, they came in the 7th century and um, uh, also killed uh, Christians and Jews in that region and took it over and uh, and colonized it with Islam. So uh, there was that period, and then the Crusaders. So that that period happened. So all of this uh, was a, a long-term thing. In the meantime, what was happening with the Jews? Well, they they were had a continuous presence in in the 1500s when the Ottoman Empire conquered that area, which then held for 400 years. The um, the Jews remained um, uh, a, a very predominant in a place called Sfat, in another place called Tiberias on, on, on the Great Lake Knesset there in Israel, in Accra, um, and uh, in um, uh, Jerusalem, which was, of course, for them, a, a holy site. Uh, and in fact, in the middle 1800s, Sure. Um, they were a majority in Jerusalem uh, when the first census, you know, actual kind of official census was done by the Ottomans. They were the majority uh, in that. So therefore, they were always there. Yes. And but it, it looks like it was a settler thing because then they moved there. Well, they didn't move there like conquerors, the way the British came to uh, to India or like the French. Uh, came to North Africa, or most vividly in our time, the way the Chinese came into Tibet, killing one million of the seven million people there and destroying 10,000 monasteries. So um, instead, what they did was they purchased land because they were escaping from pogroms of the Tsar in Russia and Lithuania and Poland and uh, so coming back to the Jewish homeland. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, Marv, yeah. I have to stop you there because yeah. we have to go to sure. a break. We'll wrap up on oh, the other sure. side. Dr. Marv Traeger joining us, our guest on the program. Jimmy Sangenberger here with you. News Talk 710 KNUS. Never enough time with our friend Dr. Marv Traeger joining us on the program this hour. Longtime former radical Marxist leftist who saw the light of the right and an incredible Roto-Rooter process and transformation throughout the past couple of decades. And he's been joining us for this hour. Marv, we're just about out of time, brother. Unfortunately, uh, you wanted to make a point about Islam that ties in with all that we are discussing here regarding Israel and the rising Jew hatred and how it ties in with this alliance between the far left and the jihadists. Yes. In order to understand... um uh, Islam's approach historically, Muhammad, the Quran, uh, and the Hadith, uh, the notion was that the uh, the house of peace, that's them, was going to defeat the house of war, that's everybody else, 
and that uh, once they had conquered an area, that that area would then forever be Muslim. It could not revert to um, whatever it was before that. And so the area, uh, uh, since in the 7th century, they colonized that region. And this isn't even a question of Arabs. It's, it's really a question of the religion of, of, of Islam and the teachings of Muhammad. Now, some say the teachings of Muhammad, you know, have a peaceful side. Well, the early teachings do when he was a minority, but toward the end, it, it turns more warlike. And uh, the jurists uh, in, in Islam take the view of abrogation, the principle of abrogation. In other words, whatever was said later, if it contradicts something that's said earlier, that which is said later takes precedence. So therefore, what the jihadists, their view there is that, that, that there's no way that Jews can even exist there. It, uh, and they certainly can't have political power in any way. And so, so that's their underlying view, and that's why when they talk about it, they talk about a really annihilation from the river to the sea. But these college students, if you ask them, you know, which river, they wouldn't be able to tell you it was the Jordan River or what sea it was the Mediterranean Sea. So uh, there's completely ignorance of Islam's part in uh, how it unites. And there was never nationalism. Why should why would why would these conquered lands have to be nationalistic? They were under um, Islam, and and so uh, uh, Palestinian nationalism only arose in the 1920s uh, as a sure. result of the fact yeah. that the Jews came there. Dr. Marv Traeger, we are out of time. I wanted to give you a moment to tell folks how they can get in touch with you. <laughs> Yes, if you want to um, uh, email me, you can email me at uh, kagakpawo at AOL.com. That's K-A-D-A-K-P-A-W-O, all one word, at AOL.com. And just put, you know, if you're sending me something, put Marv in the, uh, you know, the announcement of the email coming in so I don't think it's just uh, trash. Spam. And, um uh, yes, yeah, spam. And um, uh, also, uh, I've been asked to write a review, a book review of Alan Dershowitz's new book. And uh, that will appear on thepricklypair.org. The Prickly Pear is one is word, small cat. And the name of his book is? The name of his book is War Against the Jews. Dr. Mark Traeger, yeah. thank you. We are out of time. The War Against the Jews. Powerful read. Merry Christmas. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.